Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So before I jump into this week's episode, I just wanted to share. Every now and again, I receive feedback where people say, I like the show, but not all of the episodes apply to me. And they don't have to. It's called the Business of Healthcare. And our mission behind the podcast is actually for everybody with an NHS email to just listen to one. So in order to try to fulfill that mission, the show is really broad. At the moment, we are focusing on primary care networks. I've done podcasts on diabetes. I've done podcasts on personalised care. I've done podcasts looking at pharmacy. I've done a podcast looking at the role of the health and wellbeing coach. So it's really broad. And we just ask that you listen to one. If you listen to more, that's absolutely fantastic. And research shows on average, people listen to around seven podcasts and we want to be one of your seven. You don't have to listen to every single one. I mean, there's 250 at least. So you don't have to listen to everyone, but hopefully you just find one interesting, insightful, entertaining. And if you do, we would love it if you gave us a review and a rating on iTunes or your preferred podcast player and that you share it. So that is a mission. No pressure to listen to everyone. Not everyone is going to float your boat, but hopefully the show is broad enough that sooner or later, one episode will hook you in. So let's get on with the main event. In this podcast, I am over the moon to bring you back Finn Robinson. Finn is the founder and the director at Pure Physiotherapy. This podcast is for my primary care network colleagues. And in this podcast, we talk about workforce planning as we start to approach the second part of the year. We talk about the importance of clinical supervision. We highlight some of the services and first contact physio service can provide. And Finn also gives us an example of a discrete project an FCP service can deliver for those of you thinking about underspend, which is not recurrent. Pure Physiotherapy work with around 130 primary care networks at the time of recording. Some of the networks that we work with them work with Pure. I have just been a fan since day one. They kindly sponsor our primary care network management blog, which I'll be forever grateful because they were our first blog sponsor. I love working with them, all of the team. And Finn, his high energy always makes me smile. And yeah, he's just a pleasure to be around. So enjoy. And if you like it, it would be great if you shared it.
Hey, Finn, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for the invitation. Nice to be back. Yeah, we're having a good old natter. I love catching up with you. So Finn has been on the podcast before, but could you remind our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? I set up a company called Pure Physiotherapy in 2006 as a physiotherapist in Rotherham in a tiny room in a gym. And now we've grown sort of organically over time to have about maybe 350 physios working with us and around 400 in total working across, across England in private practice, but also in a huge way in primary care. So we support about 130 primary care networks currently from Cornwall to Carlisle and Cromer to Western Supermare, North, South, East, West, really. You don't just do that. You do other stuff as well. I teach at a few different universities on the MSc programmes. I work for, as was NHS Health Education England, all wrapped up in NHS England a bit more now, around the hours roles, so the additional roles in primary care. And I deliver training courses for people to be accredited as supervisors, so whether that's GPs or paramedics or physios, dietitians, etc. They're the first contact roles typically in primary care. And I work as an ambassador as well for one of the training hubs for the hours roles. Quite busy, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And we are both going to be at Best Practice. And we were there together, not together, but our stands were next door. Yeah, very close. Felt like when we saw your stand, we need to up our game. (laughs) Have you upped it it this year? Um, I need to speak to Valentina. Yes. (laughs) We're planning to up our game this year, but I'm still waiting to get sign off on some of the spending. We'll see. Watch this space. What keeps you going back to Best Practice? It's interesting. I had a call just this morning from one of the guys at Best Practice around different things that we're doing this year. I think what I found really good about the Best Practice, and we did the one in London earlier this year as well, is the attendees. We see a lot of people that we want to talk to. So GPs, clinical directors, people working in primary care, nurses, commissioners. And it gives us an opportunity to often put a face to a name or to an email and to discussions we might have had over this, over Zoom or Teams. It's lovely to meet a lot of these people. So I think the last one in October in the NEC, there must be 30 or 40 GP partners or PCM managers who we work with, who I have never met face to face, who came across, had a got our reaction game, did well, probably better than me. And then uh, it was lovely to see them. So I think that is a big factor. It's nice to be able to see people that we're working with and talk to people that we perhaps aren't working with around what we do. It's a good event. I enjoy it. So when we were talking before we press record, you were saying that you, Pure, have experienced even more inquiries, people looking to work with you. What are those primary care networks looking for? What we're trying to focus on, what we've tried to focus on since we started FCP back in 2016 with the early trials from NHS England, which was via CCGs at the time, is quality, transparency, because we're not going to get it all the time. It's recognising that and it's being transparent in things going well and perhaps things that are a bit more challenging. I genuinely think our reputation now is hopefully quite well known to primary care networks. And I think what networks that we're talking to at the minute are looking for is consistency of service or a reliable service, one that's flexible and listens to what the practice is, the partners, the practice managers, what the PCN as a whole needs and flexing to that because that can change. Is there estates or estates changing? Is there different roles coming in? How can we flex that? That flexibility, transparency, and then a genuine service. So the supervision being taken care of, the peer support, the debriefs, these things that would normally lay with a PCN or with a practice to take care of. The PCN practice is having confidence that we've got that under control. We can demonstrate that and patient feedback and show the satisfaction for patients as well, I think is one of the big, big factors to not be a locum agency, which is my worst fear that we're seeing as a locum agency. 
because it's a supported service. And I had a few calls this week, three or four, maybe this week with new PCNs, just saying that you should expect a lot from us. And if you don't feel you're getting a lot, please put your hand up and tell us, hang on, we thought we were getting more. And thankfully, very few do. But I want to encourage people that we're working with to feel they should be getting a lot from us. I mean, some of the PCNs are working with frailty elements, some of them are working with de-prescribing, some are working with pre- and post-orthopedic management. There's more often we can do with these additional roles and linking with the other roles within primary care. So podiatrists, pharmacists, really good social prescribers, health and wellbeing coaches, and creating a bit more of an MDT. It's a long answer, as all my answers are, I'm afraid, Tara. But... <laughs> I think it's really, really helpful because I think, I mean, you would know more than me, but I think with all of the roles, to be fair, even if you're a PCN manager, there is still like, what does a manager do? What does a pharmacist do? What does an FCP do? Yeah. So I think hearing yeah. the wide range of services that an FCP can offer, I think is always, always really, really helpful. So we're in the second half of the calendar year and moving into the final quarters of the financial year, which means underspend time. Lots of ICBs will be looking at the spend against additional role reimbursement scheme budget. Same message is always the same. You know, like if you don't use it, you lose it. Which yeah. means primary care network managers, if you're listening to this, there is a rush. You'll be phoning up pharmacists, phoning up lots of agencies, organisations, providers to say, we need more. How do you manage that? Because recruitment is tough. It is tough. Every year, exactly the same thing happens. We've had people ring up in March to say they've got fifty, sixty thousand pounds to spend. It's very difficult. What I found really interesting last year with the underspend is that each ICS, ICB took a slightly different view on things, some of which were very, very supportive of their PCNs, as in being quite flexible with how they use the underspend and how it might be able to cascade a little bit into the following financial year, so long as it was structured in a certain way. Whereas other ICBs were saying, absolutely not, all has to be done. And it has to be a six-month contract, which basically means it's gone because it's already less than six months before you can use it. So a real discrepancy, I think, across the country, and it was dark difference. The sooner we anyone's been having discussions, the better, because non-recurring money within primary care is a challenge to do something that I feel is, or we all feel, is clinically meaningful. It's easy, relatively easy to get rid of it, but you don't just want to get rid of this money. It's our money as a nation, so we want to use it for clinically useful and meaningful things. I think distinct projects can work really well. So I mentioned frailty, I mentioned the orthopaedic stuff, long-term conditions, so sort of persistent pain, chronic pain, if you will, elements can be quite good as distinct projects to address particular cohorts when it's not recurring. And we did quite a lot of that last year, which has actually then continued to be funded by quite a few ICBs as a longer-term project now for particular PCNs. So my ask to everyone is to think as soon as you can. If it is genuinely non-recurring, the quicker that discussion can be had, the better. If it's likely to wrap up into core, which we know probably will happen next March, April, Again, the earlier we can have the discussions, the better. I had a chat yesterday to a really good PCN manager and clinical director who haven't had FCP before in their PCN, which I'm always excited to hear because, A, I don't know why they wouldn't have had an FCP physio because the impact's so great potentially. But also, if they haven't had it, I know that they're looking for two full time. They're going to feel a real difference for their PCN, for the practice, for the patients. So I'm surprised there's still probably quite a few PCNs out there who maybe haven't made use of all the different R's roles and therefore may not recognise some of the benefits that, not just saying physio, some of the other roles might bring to their particular PCN. So I think you're right when you say not everyone's fully clear with what the different roles are and what they can do. The sooner we know, the better for anyone. But also opening the idea to the other roles and how they might interact with your current team, I think is really, really wise. Could you just give an example? So where you've said discrete projects, I think that will be 
really helpful for people to understand. If we take chronic pain, what would yeah. a distinct project led by an FCP team look like looking at chronic pain? So our sister company called Rehab Direct, which is part of Pure, they run, we don't really call them chronic pain programs, but long-term condition management of MSK projects. And they're commissioned by quite a lot of PCNs and ICSs now for long and short-term projects. They typically run for 16, 18 weeks, and we get a cohort of patients that come through who might be low function, dependent on medical services, have been through a secondary care pain service repeatedly, and the sort of patients that aren't really progressing. You can take a cohort, which can be searched off system one or EMIS, and then manage them over a 16-week period to improve their outcome measures, objective outcome measures at the end, and improve their resilience to life, really. So improve their independence, reduce their opioid and gabapentinoid elements or dependencies. It can be quite a relatively clean start and finish type project. What's happened in a lot of those projects is that they've been recommissioned due to the impact. And most practices have got a cohort of patients that fit within that, that are difficult to manage in any NHS setting, be that secondary or primary. But the burden tends to land repeatedly on primary care, and they're quite tricky to manage with the structures in primary care currently. And that doesn't just involve FCP physio, specialist physios. It also involves linking with health and wellbeing coaches, linking with their existing staff. So it's quite a nice way to upskill as well the slightly wider R's team. But that's worked particularly well. Thank you. Hi everyone, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with Best Practice, where we will be interviewing some of the speakers and sponsors attending the event in Birmingham on the 11th and 12th of October. If you are already registered to attend, do let us know as we would love to meet you. And if you are still to register your place, please click on the link in the show notes. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. So before we press record, we were talking about peer support and supervision, and you've mentioned it. In some networks, it's hard because of just it's so busy. And I think sometimes you want somebody that in an ideal world, come in, sit down and just know exactly what to do and have the support and be really self-sufficient. But a clinical role, all roles, clinical or non-clinical, you do need supervision and clinical roles need clinical supervision. So for those networks and people listening where they're not part of Pure, but they're employed, what would you say to them about the importance of having clinical supervision and what the potential implication could be if they don't have it? It's a great question. I'll start with the implication because it's a very, very serious consideration for anyone, whether you're directly employed, whether you're via a trust, via an independent such as ourselves, however it's set up. I do some work with different law firms. Sadly, looking at reviewing things for clinical negligence where things have gone skew with. My role there is sense checking things, particularly the ones around primary care and the R's roles, really. So, without going into any details, where we see the biggest challenge and things have gone sideways is where the peer support, the debriefs, and the supervision structure isn't clear. And all three are quite different. So, a daily debrief could be done by a GP or by a nurse or by a peer. Really important from a governance perspective and from a well-being perspective for the practitioner as well as patient safety. But peer support is difficult because if you've only got one paramedic or one physio, the peer support within that PCN it won't be there. So they have to reach outside their PCN. And that then brings in elements around patient confidentiality. Potentially, it brings in elements around have the other people got time to give them support. And that's where it tends to fall down sometimes, I think, is when you've got a limited number of a particular profession within your PCN directly employed. And you have to try and support them in in a peered way. It's difficult. And we've seen that, as I say, I use the word go sideways. A few of the cases, that's been a real challenge 
difficult to argue against in those areas. If you've got one or two physios, they can really support each other. It's not necessarily allowing best practice to be shared knowledge from, from a wider range. Most trusts and hopefully the larger independents that have got, we've got 350 FCPs. We have specific groups and sessions weekly, daily. And the final thing is the supervision structure. So the supervision structure, the roadmaps to practice are very clear in terms of what, well, being very clear is maybe a contentious point, but they're relatively clear. They're intended to be clear around what's expected. And I think page 37, 39 of the musculoskeletal one is quite clear. It's a checklist. You don't need to read all 106 pages. You can skip to those ones just to be clear that you're doing those things. We discussed beforehand, there's probably some changes to how that's going to, the roadmaps are going to look going forward, which were people having a view on when these, when information comes out more about that. But the peer support, the debrief element and the supervision, the structure of that supervision is crucial. If something, you know, from a CQC point of view, how are you supporting the staff? How are you debriefing? How are you getting patient feedback? Not just from the staff, but it's also from patients. I think some of these things absolutely are achievable if it's in direct employment. They're probably harder. Some of the elements, peer support, for example. And it's quite a responsibility. I mean, the, when HE put out the R's roles as a proposed thing in the roadmaps, they were saying 20 to 30% of the time should be non-clinical for these R's roles to support the peer support, the supervision and the safety really for patient and practitioner. I know, unfortunately, when we talk to PCNs, that isn't happening. I, I interviewed someone maybe two weeks ago, an FCP who's doing back-to-back appointments in 15 minutes, no debriefs, no CPD, been there three months, and he broke down in tears on the call. And that's not the first time that's happened. Now, that particular practice, that particular PCN is running a huge, huge risk. A, of the staff member leaving, but also they were scared they're not doing things safely. So having the right support for your staff, however the structure is, is just absolutely critical. And the risks are significant, you know, if it goes wrong. How long has Pure Physio been going? Uh, 2006. And the FCP work we've been doing since 2016. So how has your role as the founder changed? Well, in very simple terms, when I first set up Pure Physio, I would open the door to the clinic, I would clean the clinic, I would market the clinic, I would see the patients, do the notes, do the invoicing very badly, I would do everything. As we've grown, I've learned the value of bringing people in that can help you to do things. I think you can never grow, really, unless you start to learn to let go of things and trust people who, unfortunately, will make mistakes. And not let that mistake then cause you to retract back into your shell and think, well, actually, I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to take on these other things. I feel we have a really positive influence on primary care, on MSK management. Lots of my colleagues teach at different universities and produce research, doing PhDs. Really stuff we're very, very proud of. None of that we could have done if I just stayed in my shell in that little room doing everything. So we've now got a fantastic team. We've got people in working marketing. We just brought a HR director on. There's no way, which is very, very good. I've no way in my wildest dreams, I think, of bringing on someone on that sort of level of seniority and wage and everything else who basically tells me I'm wrong most days, rightly, rightly <laughs> tells me I'm wrong. And it's brilliant. And I think if you're in a position where you can accept criticism from your colleagues, it's really lovely. So my look or whatever it might have been or being the right mentality has helped. I think if you don't have that, you struggle to grow sustainably. We're not growing to sell or to be bought by Tesco's or anything. Our goal is just to keep delivering good quality. And if we can feel we can help and we can do something well, we'll do it. We'll try and do it. So I think it's changed really unrecognizably. But the principles of doing things well and quality and transparency from 2006 are absolutely what we, we want to have now. I, mean, I think we've got those now. Hence, we've brought the HR directing to make sure and the rest of the team, not just, not just them. There's, there's also people in HR and other areas and leadership to make sure we are achieving that and not losing sight of that, which I think is, for me, really important. 
The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. What keeps you up at night? Oh, millions of things. Have my son's lizards got enough crickets? What time do I need to get up in the bed? <laughs> Any number of things. When am I going to get my next run in? Should I have booked an Ironman already? Have I let myself down by not booking one in? Ironically, not that much work, but we've got a great team. And so the days are sometimes quite stressful. There's lots of things going on. I quite like stress. So it's not, that's not a bad thing for me. But actually at night, generally speaking, I'm thinking about crickets and Ironman and whether I need to cut the grass again or put some new plants in the borders, which is probably maybe quite a mental help to take away just thinking about work. I do love my work. I love what we do. I'm very proud and passionate about what we do. I also you know, love my children, love running and whatever else I do. So I'm generally in life quite enthusiastic, probably not dissimilar to yourself. I don't think Tara really, so it helps. I was going to say, you mentioned your garden. So let me paint a picture. Most people have just your bog standard garden that you don't need to like a sit down mower. <laughs> Yours is next level. Yours looks yeah. like the Chelsea Flower Show. It looked huge. When me and my wife moved from Sheffield, we had our first child, Jennifer, and we moved to Norfolk. And we moved from essentially a large terrace house in Sheffield to a small cottage in Norfolk, which just had a three-acre field next to it, part of the house. So we've got a ridiculous-sized garden. We've had pigs in the past, and we've got chickens and geese and things now. And my family were farmers from Cambridgeshire originally, on my mum's side. So I was desperate to get land. I've got too much land. We have got too much land. We've got a lot of trees. We've got a lot of birds. We've got a lot of deer. We don't want the deer. We've got a lot of deer, a lot of rabbits. But I do love the garden. And actually, even as a sort of 18, 19-year-old from university, on a Friday, I'd either watch, it wasn't even monted on then, but I'd watch Gardener's World before we went out on the beers, or I'd watch it the next day, record it and watch it. And I think everyone's around and say, what are you doing? But I'm genuinely interested in garden. I've been to Chelsea Flower Show, been to Harrogate, I've been to these things, Tatton Park. I genuinely enjoy seeing things grow in nature. So it's, again, that probably helps from a stress point of view. It's lovely to enjoy that sort of thing. And every year it changes. Have you signed up for an Ironman? Well, I have signed up for a half Ironman. Have you done an Ironman? This is not about me. (laughs) I've signed up for a half. I've been trying to persuade other people, yourself included, and one or two others to join me. So I'm doing a half Ironman in September to September in Weymouth, which I did last year as a build-up to the full Ironman in in Barcelona, which was gruelling. As an event, the Weymouth half was just so nice. It's a lovely, lovely event. I'm looking forward to that. Maybe hopefully I'll get a better time than last year. I wasn't allowed to do another Ironman this year. My family said, you can't do another one this year. Hopefully next year, it's just quite time consuming. The training for one is, is time consuming. Yeah. You should I'm do one. not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to try to do something. We need to try to yeah. do something that fits all of our preferences. I like an adventure, well, exercise plus adventure. 
I went to Patagonia in December on a race between two glaciers, a 210 miles sort of cycling, running, fell running and kayaking, which was fantastic. So that would fit the bill. And I used to do something similar in Iceland, probably not dissimilar to what we described. It's just getting a sign off from the family is probably the, yeah. <laughs> the key thing. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Finn. I really appreciate it. And I also wanted to say, I have loved connecting with you. And I always say this, and it is genuine from the first moment you messaged me on LinkedIn, I feel like we've been friends ever since you sponsored yeah. the blog. You're our first sponsor. And I really, really, really appreciate that. Everybody I interact with Pure, it is the same friendly, kind service. I was talking to PCN yesterday, and one of the reasons that we were keen to sponsor and get involved in what you're doing is because what I said, this PCN manager yesterday I was chatting to, who said, actually, we've come to talk to you because we, we know of you anyway, and also we follow the Tara Humphrey podcasts. And I said, well, that's, that's a good endorsement. I said, because one thing that you probably already know about Tara, even if you don't know her, is she won't endorse something unless she genuinely thinks yeah. it's a good thing. And you've made that clear to me in the past. But it was interesting hearing this particular PCM managers because I don't think she does know you, but it's clear that if it was three-legged donkey, you probably wouldn't endorse that as, as a racehorse. That's why I'm really keen to sponsor the blogs and whatnot, because it's not a matter of just sponsoring and therefore we get endorsement. You wouldn't do it if you weren't happy with the service, which is great key for us. Yeah. No, definitely. We are a year into this journey. So we have been talking, working together for a long time now and even before you sponsored the blog. So I just want to say thank you. I will see you in best practice. We'll go and get a drink. And if people want to connect with you, what's the best place to connect with you? Have a guess. LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll leave your handle in the show notes. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.